to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Raff. I am Monish Raff here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C. Real briefly, the OSHA 3030 is a webinar that we do. Uh, it's a, it takes about 30 minutes, and we do it in about every 30 days. Uh, and we try and pick a topic in the field of OSHA law that we think is the most impactful development in the recent few weeks uh, leading into the OSHA 3030. Uh, news that you need to know or that will impact your operations or your compliance procedures or how you contest OSHA enforcement actions. Uh, today we have a great topic, uh, a decision that came out of the Fifth Circuit involving how OSHA interprets its own regulations in the context of an enforcement action. And I'm joined this month uh, at today's OSHA 3030 by my colleague here at Keller & Heckman, partner Larry Halpern. Larry, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Manish. Pleasure to be here with you today. Uh, many of you listening know Larry Halpern very well. He is one of the godfathers of OSHA law anywhere in the country, and so I'm particularly grateful that you're joining me, Larry. Larry, I think we've got a great topic. This, this decision uh, essentially evaluated whether or not uh, OSHA's interpretation of its own standard as it was trying to enforce a citation was uh, an appropriate interpretation, given that on the face of the standard it was ambiguous. Uh, so what we're going to cover today is we'll, we'll talk about this Fifth Circuit decision and the case as it tracked through before an ALJ, uh, uh, the com Review Commission, and into the Fifth Circuit, and talk about the principles governing the interpretation of uh, ambiguous agency standards, uh, of which there are plenty. And, and uh, we'll talk about what the factors are that played into the Fifth Circuit's decision, and then, as we always do, we'll finish off with some practical advice on what employers can do. So with that said, let's talk about the background of this case. So Larry, this involves Walmart and the Occupational Safety and Health Review, uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, going back before the inspection that led to a citation, uh, well before any of that had happened, Walmart at its distribution center in Searcy, Arkansas, had applied for uh, entry into the VP, VPP program. Can you say a few sentences on the VPP program? It's designed to be a cooperative arrangement between OSHA and the site. Sometimes it's done on a corporate-wide basis where a corporation demonstrates a commitment to safety and health, establishes programs, and generally demonstrates that it's willing to go beyond what considered minimum OSHA requirements. And on that basis, OSHA reviews it, decides that qualifies for certain under certain criteria, lost birth injury rates, written programs, employee involvement, management commitment, and if it complies, then basically it's given a particular status, star, whatever it is, and as a result, um, it's given a certain recognition. It's exempted from routine inspections, and for some sites it's designed to be a way of advancing safety. For others it's a political issue. For There are a whole variety of reasons why someone might be engaged in But we're really talking about some of the the best or role model type safety programs, right? That, that, that's the intent. That's the theory. So so Walmart applies for uh, VPP uh, participation in the VPP program for its Searcy, Arkansas distribution center. And... Uh, as it's walking through uh, with OSHA on an audit of its site, it describes a lot of the elements of the safety program, including the hazard assessment program, uh, hazard assessment that it had conducted uh, for all the hazards that it identified at the distribution center and what PPE it had recommended 
in light of those hazards. And it had noted to OSHA at that moment, uh, by the way, our uh, hazard, our, our distribution centers are identical. We, uh, throughout the country, they are identical in the way that they're constructed as well as in the way that they are operated. And so this is essentially the hazard assessment that we apply to all of our distribution centers. Let's fast forward. OSHA at that point, by the way, didn't have any objection. They listened carefully and made no comment on that point. Fast forward to a different Walmart distribution center in New Braunfels, Texas, uh, where OSHA is called to site for an inspection. They conduct an inspection. One of the things they notice and issue a citation on is uh, the, the failure to conduct a hazard assessment relating to personal protective equipment. Uh, the, the, uh, the folks at Walmart said that the, the, you know, the hazard assessment that they had used in New Braunfeld was its corporate-wide universal hazard assessment. Uh, OSHA says, well, it doesn't specifically mention the New Braunfeld site, but, uh, and, and that that constitutes a violation. So let's go to the PPE standard and talk about what that standard actually says. So, so the PPE standard says the employer shall assess the workplace. The employer shall assess the workplace to identify all hazards present at that workplace and determine what PPE is necessary. Uh, if there are hazards present at the workplace, the employer must select and have each affected employee use the personal protective, uh, protective equipment that would address that particular hazard. And it must communicate its selection decisions to each affected employee. Uh, the third criteria to me really seems built into the first one, but it has to make sure that the personal protective equipment fits, properly fits that specific employee. They have to go through fit testing and fit evaluation. Uh, but the, the real action to me seems to be in that first line right there, that the employer shall assess the workplace to determine what hazards are present that necessitate the use of PPE. Now, with that said, the employer, Walmart, said, look, we've done this hazard assessment, and we did it at Thirsty Arkansas, and we believe it applies to all of our identical distribution centers, including the distribution center in New Braunfels, Texas. OSHA said, yeah, but your hazard assessment here at New Braunfels doesn't specifically in the document say this applies to New Braunfels, Texas. And so they issued a citation under the language that I just described. Well, Walmart says that may be, but there's nothing in the standard that says that each hazard assessment must be site-specific. So that's the battle going back and forth. It's, I think, a fairly straightforward argument on both sides, Larry. Uh, OSHA's point is very clear. It says, well, we're issuing you a citation because you need to do uh, a hazard assessment at New Braunfels, and Walmart's saying that may be that you think so, but it doesn't say that in the standard. That's, that's an ambiguity in the standard that you're sort of just – uh, reading between the lines. And I know you wish that the standard had been clearer, but you can't make up the ambiguity now in, this, in the context of this enforcement. If those were all the facts and we didn't have any others, um, you know, I see the review commission coming out this way because OSHA gets deference, and that probably would have been the end of the case. Next, and next in fact, issue. And, in fact, the uh, uh, administrative law judge agreed with OSHA because, as you say, if it was as simple as that, the agency should get deference. And, as you say, when it went to the review commission, they did affirm uh, the administrative law judge's decision. And so you're, you're quite right about that. Uh, so when we get to the next step, Walmart appeals again. 
and it takes it up to the Fifth Circuit. So the Fifth Circuit is a federal court of appeals responsible for the, the Fifth Circuit, including Texas. And I think it's important here, Larry, for you and I to discuss the, the back and forth, historical back and forth on the question of agency interpretation. How much deference must a court give to an agency when an agency interprets its own regulation? Which it adopted through a rulemaking process. Which it adopted through a proper right. rulemaking. Thank right. you. That's exactly right. right. So I think we start the discussion with Martin versus uh, OSHA, uh, where the Occupational Safety uh, Review Commission held. You know, that, called in that case, the Review Commission took a position on what the issue was, but it was contrary to OSHA's interpretation, and then went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, Review Commission, you have to defer to OSHA's interpretation if it's reasonable. The, of course, the logic extension of that from an hour case is that not only does that rule apply to a Review Commission determination, but also to a court decision, that you also have to defer to an agency's determination and interpreting a rule when it's clearly ambiguous. So first you review the um, the language of the rule and the preamble and all those other and things. And evaluate that there's true ambiguity. And, yeah, once you decide there's an ambiguity, then if OSHA's interpretation is reasonable, not contrary to law, there's not an issue of lack of notice, and it doesn't present an unreasonable burden on regulated entities. And one example of when this came up never ended up being litigated because Congress actually resolved it was when OSHA announced at the beginning of the first Obama administration was going to reinterpret the noise standard, which would have had a huge burden in changing the application of the rule in the noise area. Uh, didn't get litigated. People speculated how that would have come out. But the bottom line is you do have to see whether industry is reasonably on notice or lack of notice as to OSHA's interpretation. In this particular case, I'm not aware of any published interpretations. So what we're saying is Walmart took a reasonable interpretation. OSHA said that's wrong, but the way that OSHA decided to resolve it was not to make a public announcement, not to issue a letter of interpretation, but simply to take an enforcement action. And in the context of enforcement action, then you've got to look at the other factors, including notice. Go ahead. So, so I think this is important to discuss at a little greater length. When the Supreme Court in Martin said that courts must defer to an agency interpretation, it did put some provisos in there. It must the court must defer to the agency, provided that the interpretation still had to be consistent with the standard. It can't be completely contrary. The next, I think, is that the interpretation by the agency has to at least be reasonable. So there is this reasonable test. Then it can't be contrary to the, to the law. In other words, the uh, empowering statute, for one thing, and any other law, uh, can't be violated in principle by, by the agency's interpretation. Uh, and then what you're talking about, Larry, which I think is really critical, the, uh, the Martin's court has anticipated this problem somewhat and said, look, we can't allow for uh, an agency to create an interpretation at any stage not just the ones you're describing, Larry, but in any stage that creates a lack of due notice. Uh, at some point, this is a critical point, because at some point this had been widely accepted to mean rulemaking. And 
that I don't think that that was uh, ever really challenged until this case. Uh, the other final proviso is that the interpretation by the agency can't put an unreasonable burden upon the regulated entity. Right. So the D.C. Circuit had a paralyzed veterans principle, which basically says the agency had established an interpretation that it couldn't change it dramatically without new rulemaking, and the Supreme Court said, no, that's not what the Well, but the, the paralyzed veterans case that you're describing, which is D.C. Circuit, had, had long been relied upon by the regulated community. And I think that's what makes it so critical is that that the paralyzed veterans is a very sensible decision that says if you if you the agency do want to make an interpretation that is not contrary to law it's consistent and reasonable uh, notice and comment rulemaking is a reasonable way to put the regulated community on notice and so it held the agency to a standard as to some kind of notice and comment rulemaking or something that would otherwise reasonably inform the regulated community. And, and we've cited, right. you and I, in many of our cases where we've challenged the same kinds of things that Walmart's challenged, we've cited paralyzed veterans a number of times. Mm -hmm. It was a helpful case. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, you end up with an abusive process where the agency intentionally creates ambiguous rules and then reinterprets them, reinterprets them through some sort of reinterpretation guidance, enforcement actions without any way of actually maintaining any court or judicial oversight over those abuses. And... And then, what, about a year and a half ago comes Mortgage Bankers? I think that's April 2013, maybe, or 14? No, it's March of, I think we write March 2015, something like that. Yeah. So it's a really important case, and another Fair Labor Standards case, by the way. And in that case, the agency had already issued an interpretation. It was longstanding. It essentially said, in plain English, that these certain job titles that we'll call um, mortgage lenders and mortgage brokers uh, would have been exempt from the overtime requirements of the Fair Labor Standards Act, and then uh, after years and years of operating under this interpretation, the agency reverses itself and says, no, these, these are not these are non-exempt positions. And when the Mortgage Bankers Association challenged that, the court, I think surprising to many, said it's okay for an agency to reverse its own uh, interpretation, even though the regulated community has relied on it for many, many years. And these were interpretation letters. In other words, they did not go through notice and comment rulemaking. They also didn't do it through an enforcement action. That's, that's true. That's a fair point. <laughs> they did not was, go through an enforcement action. There was an announcement to the regulated community, like it or not, that right. this is what we're planning on doing. Right. But you can't say that's correct. Because it was not an enforcement action, you can't say there was no notice. On the other hand, you, you can't say that they went through notice and comment right. rulemaking where the affected parties had an opportunity to comment and participate in the rulemaking. So, so what the court said, which I, which I think was an interesting way to maybe thread the needle, was, look, yes, the agency can reverse its own decision without having to go through rulemaking. On the other hand, it certainly undermines the amount of deference that a court would have to give it. And so it sort of put the all agencies, I think, including OSHA, on notice that if you're going to flip-flop in your interpretations, we may not give you the same agency deference. Uh, one of the members of our community has chimed in with a question. And by the way, any of you have questions, you can uh, post them uh, on your lower left-hand corner, I believe, of your screen. And one of them asked, is this, the, would, would this be a circumstance where Chevron deference applies? Chevron is a case, uh, another watershed or landmark case, where the courts said if you have an agency that's in, issued an interpretation, again, provided that it's consistent with the enabling statute and not unreasonable, 
the court should defer to that agency that has been charged with the responsibility of, of administering that statute. Uh, the only difference between Chevron and why I don't mention it here in this discussion, Larry hasn't mentioned it here in this discussion, is that Chevron goes to a court deferring to an agency's interpretation of a congressional statute, whereas what we are discussing here is a court's deference to an agency in its interpretation of its own regulation. Is that a safe statement, Larry? Right, right. So, so now we have mortgage bankers essentially overturning paralyzed veterans in limited part, I'd say, because it did question how much deference a court would have to give in those circumstances. And now we are uh, moving to the question of what the Fifth Circuit has to do with all of this in interpreting uh, its own PPE standard as particularly regards the requirement for hazard assessment in the Walmart case. And so the Fifth Circuit, taking all of this uh, uh, ancestry of, of legal precedent, said, look, we will have to defer to OSHA as long as this interpretation is reasonable. And OSHA is saying uh, that every uh, workplace needs its own hazard assessment. So when we, as Larry, you pointed out, the first step is to find out whether that's, there's a true ambiguity here. And they said the first thing we ought to do, just as a matter of routine, is look at the preamble to the rule when it was first promulgated and see if there's anything in there that sheds light on, on the question of an ambiguous regulatory sentence. The second thing we ought to do is look at any appendices to the standard. Now, while appendices may or may not be mandatory, uh, they, they, again, they'll shed light on what the agency must have meant. Uh, here, it's interesting, the preamble does not have any language that clarifies whether or not the hazard assessment must be done on a site-specific basis. It did say something interesting that I noted, and I thought that the court uh, was right to, to capture. And they said, you know, in the preamble to the PPE standard, it characterized, OSHA characterized its own PPE standard as a performance standard in which, because it's a performance standard, the employer is accountable for the quality of its compliance, the quality of its performance. Larry, can you give us a briefing on the difference between performance standards and non-performance standards just to illustrate why this is such an important point? Well, in general, the performance standard, you state an objective and leave it to the employer to get there. And the specification standard, you tell them how exactly how to do it. There's really no, generally no principle being pure one or the other, but that's the general gist of it. And OSHA has characterized the PPE as a performance standard. In other words, uh, according to your definitions, and I think those are great definitions, they tell you what you need to achieve, and you have to figure out how to get there. Safe statement? Right. Mm -hmm. So... So that's a really important point to me, because what they're saying is, let's not quibble on whether it's a site-specific or a corporate-wide uh, uh, hazard assessment if it's a performance standard as long as you achieve the end result. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the way OSHA's interpreting it seems to me to be more like it's not a performance standard at all. What, what could have happened, and I don't know because I didn't do the research, there was an economic analysis of this standard uh, and probably an information collection request for this standard. Somebody could have gone back into the rulemaking docket and said, OSHA, how many sites did you identify as subject to this requirement? And for the ones that had, let's say, a corporation with 400 sites, did the OSHA count this as one-time job or something was going to be done 400 times and allocated a burden, for example, to each one of them? Uh, it doesn't look like anybody looked into that. I don't know what the answer would have been. But in any case, here, uh, 
if you look at it simply, what what someone would do now in hindsight is do a uniform assessment, send it around every site and have a manager in the course of a walkthrough of the warehouse say, okay, this makes sense, sign off on it and it's done. Um, and that's easy to say in 2020 hindsight, but that's what people would do now to get around what OSHA did and, and solve the problem. So, so the other thing that the court wanted to look at, in addition to the preamble, was the appendix. And there it kind of militates in the other direction. Uh, the appendix is non-mandatory, but it did say that the employer shall personally observe working conditions. Right. And elsewhere says that the employer must conduct a walk-through survey of areas in question. I'm not sure there were any areas of question, in question, and I think that's an important point. But nevertheless, when you look at the language personally observe or a walk-through survey, to me that suggests a site-specific. You can't say I walked through a personally observed New Braunfels facility because I observed uh, the one in Searcy, Arkansas, and they're identical. I don't think that's personal observation. I think that's precisely what they mean by personal observation, mm. is it has to be that site. Uh, so, so I think that there's language that cuts both ways when you compare those phrases in the appendix with the idea that there's it's a performance standard after all. Well, the other thing is OSHA standards are generally looked at as site-specific. I know when we've been in enforcement actions, we've always taken the position that every site is separate and whatever happens at one site is not something you attribute to the other site. <laughs> and so it's hard to have it both ways. Well, not only that, but I'm not sure this is a wise argument to make in many cases to say that, hey, whatever hazards you find here are exactly the hazards you find in my other facilities. I think you're right. You want to contain this to one facility mm -hmm. if you can. And one of the stipulations that you don't want to volunteer is the idea of um, this, this uh, uniformity of all your facilities. And so that's a very good point, Larry. I, I, uh, I'm glad you had a chance to bring that up because uh, there are a lot of cases where I wouldn't have made the same defense that Walmart. There are a lot of cases that I've had where I took great pains to not make that same point that Walmart made. Uh, not to say that that wasn't a wise decision in this particular case, but it wouldn't always work. So, so, with, um, so with that in mind, looking at the preamble and the, the appendix, uh, the Fifth Circuit said, look, the bottom line is we think OSHA's interpretation is reasonable. Remember the provisos that I was describing to you earlier. And they said, when you look at the Martin decision, uh, we think that it's important to note that in Martin, uh, an interpretation may be reasonable, but it must, another proviso is that it must be noticed to the regulated community uh, in a way that they, they understand what they have to do in time to, to implement it. Uh, so here, in the Walmart case, we think that the interpretation was reasonable, but OSHA's decision to use a citation as the initial means of communicating that interpretation on a regulated member of the a regulated community uh, is something that we have to evaluate when we think about whether that notice was adequate. And I think that they were saying that in a very understated way. Uh, really what they mean to say is if you're first announcing your, your agency interpretation to the whole world when going after one particular uh, employer, that's nowhere near what we think is adequate notice with regard to that particular employer. The rest of the world may get adequate notice by watching the sacrificial lamb get cited and uh, have to pay the penalties, but it doesn't seem to be fair to that particular employer. Well, I think the point is, as you raised in the factual background, they put the information on the 
Walmart at this position in the BPP application, and OSHA was aware of that and did not object to it. If OSHA had gone to any other employer in the country who had not put that VPP application and stated that position, I think the court would have said it's reasonable interpretation of the law and very likely would have said there's no reason to think that this other employer would have taken a different interpretation given all the other factors, and I think the court would have come out the other way. It's an open question. Would you would you agree agree that we don't know that VPP process is so critical to the facts of this case mm-hmm. that if you remove that fact and you say the employer simply said, look, look, we all agree that the preamble, the appendix, don't really shed light on this. We didn't see any interpretation letters, and so there, there really is a true ambiguity, and we made our best guess. But it's an open question what the Fifth Circuit would have said. And I tend to take the other side from you, Larry, that I think that the VPP process that they went through in Cincinnati, Arkansas, uh, is helpful, is even more helpful to Walmart, but I don't know that they needed it. I think that still the first guy to get cited in a new utterance by the agency, a new interpretation by the agency, has not been properly noticed, but everyone after that, you could say maybe, has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, again, my own view of this is debatable as well. I think this, is, this remains an open question to maybe be resolved in future cases. For people who, who want to look a little more into this just for a minute, there's a case called Miami Industries from some time back in 1993, actually, where the um, agency had cited the company earlier for machine guarding violation. The company didn't can challenge the guarding violation, uh, went about abatement, thought it had abated it properly based on what OSHA's inspector had said the concern was, which was people walking by the machine rather than people actually working on the machine. OSHA inspected the site several times afterward, didn't cite them for machine guarding violation, and then four or five, inspect- I can't remember how many inspections later, actually went and cited them for machine guarding violation on the basis that that machine wasn't properly guarded, and the court ended up vacating the citation on the same kind of theory as here, which is that the employer had, in a sense, relied on OSHA's action, even though there's theoretically no estoppel against the government, and vacated the citation. However, like you said now, it would appear that everybody's on notice as to what OSHA's position is, and therefore the only issue left would be whether anybody who would otherwise have relied on the Walmart-type position had sufficient time to go ahead and do the necessary PPE hazard assessment for all the sites since this decision came out, and I would think that wouldn't take very long. That's yeah. one of the other things people, the courts take into account. It's not like you have to renovate your entire facility and retrofit things. You're talking about going back and doing a hazard assessment to confirm what you theoretically already determined anyway. Yeah, that's right. Another question from one of our uh, members of the OSHA 3030 community and a dear friend uh, has asked whether other external factors driving OSHA in this litigation. And I think it's fair to point out that uh, that Walmart has been far from uh, the darling of the labor-related agencies like Fair Labor Standards, EEOC, OSHA, et cetera, uh, the NLRB. But, but I, I think that when you get to the Fifth Circuit, uh, you, you hope to get a fair shake, and I think that they did, and, and it worked out well for them in this case. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is that when they say that they have a distribution center that was constructed and operated in identical fashion uh, at New Braunfels and uh, Cersei and all of their distribution centers, uh, 
I don't think that a lot of people would appreciate, unless they read this in the decision or knew it otherwise, that they have 120 distribution centers around the country. As we all know, it's a massive, massive operation, you know, maybe the largest private employer in the country, but 120 distribution centers. And I think, as time goes on, OSHA argued that it's not practical to believe that all 20 had maintained uh, perfect, identical um, unity in, in how they're operating or how they've been set up, that maybe things had migrated over time, or that the employer should assume the possibility that they had and it should have conducted a hazard assessment that was particular to each facility. I hope that answers the question from our, our friend in the community, uh, the OSHA 3030 community. Uh, with that said, Larry, you and I have used this sort of defense a number of times, uh, countless times, in cases where I think that OSHA is, uh, looks at its own standards, realizes that it, it assumes it knows what it means, but it isn't really written anywhere, and we point out to the court that this is a disingenuous interpretation of the standard, uh, because they're, they're interpreting it in the context of enforcement actions rather than in interpretation letters or, better still, notice and comment rulemaking. Uh, so, so what, practically speaking, can we talk about for our OSHA 3030 community uh, as to what employers should do when they find themselves in this circumstance? There's, I think we're talking about two different things. One is for anybody who would have done this sort of universal PP hazard assessment, I think that the prudent course of action is to take the position now that OSHA's interpretation of the rule is going to be prospectively enforced by the courts, and if you don't have a site-specific type hazard assessment where you've at least sent a universal one out to each site and say, okay, walk through the site and confirm these are the hazards and this is adequately protecting them, that's fine. Uh, and, and Larry, can I stop you right there and say that, as you pointed out earlier, a lot of the OSHA standards, it is generally accepted that they are they call for site-specific hazard assessments, even though they don't specifically say mm -hmm. that. And that's, that's been a common understanding. Go ahead. I mean, if, if you have a lockout tagout program, OSHA wants to see that it says it's for this particular site, and if there's anything unique at that site, it, that kind of thing would be there. There's usually a difference in the equipment between one piece, of, one facility and another. So OSHA is always looking for something that's site-specific. The, the other question really, I guess, comes down to uh, – when you're taking a position on a rule as to whether it requires one thing or another, uh, you should have certainly a, a sound basis for the position, and that requires looking at the rule, looking at the preamble, and looking at all the rulemaking documents. And there are times, actually, when you know it, it's appropriate to go to the agency and try to be proactive and take a position on something, or even go to OMB when the information collection request is being reapproved to try to get some clarification on these things. Otherwise, uh, keep in mind that OSHA may come out with an interpretation that's different, and if it's one that does not involve an enormous amount of retrofitting, which put an enormous amount of burden on the employer, it's more likely OSHA's interpretation is going to be enforced. Uh, it may be that a court would hold that uh, there's not adequate notice, but that just means that eventually you're going to have to come in line with what the agency's position is. The final thing, which I guess I've been, you know, advocating for a long time is participate in the rulemaking process. And, and everybody out there who loves these performance-based standards, I think you should look at what OSHA has testified to in a, in a recent proceeding, where basically OSHA took the position that everybody was asking for extensive guidance. So what OSHA is asserting is everyone wants performance standards and then extensive guidance, which tells exactly what you have to do. But when OSHA does that, then you have no control over what they say because you lost the ability to influence that language because you waited until after the final rule came out 
the performance-based language was ambiguous. He asked the agency for guidance, and then they say what they think they want after the benefit of three years, like the hazard communication standard. They put a standard out in 2012, and then they take three years to figure out what they should have put into the rule, and then they put that into the guidance document. So we want to get away from that kind of stuff. We need to participate more effectively in the rulemaking process. Otherwise, this kind of stuff is going to continue to occur. That's right. I think that's true. And in any event, there will be things that people won't be able to anticipate uh, or they assume they understood what it meant. Uh, and I think that it's important to raise these issues in your defense at the citation level. When hit with citation and you think that the interpretation of is taking is unsupported, uh, but I think you got to fight back on it the way Walmart did. I applaud Walmart's defense. I thought it was a very cleverly crafted defense, and I thought they got the result they needed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the kind of thing that every employer needs to evaluate when they hit with citation as to whether or not they want to raise that defense. Uh, Give me an example. The PPE rulemaking. Remember yeah. who pays for the PPE? Oh, yeah. We specifically put some comments in that said if OSHA interprets who pays the way it's interpreted some of these medical evaluation provisions, we're going to have employers paying for employees for two and a half hours of overtime when they go shopping for shoes. We specifically put comments into the rulemaking record, and OSHA specifically put into the preamble, no, that doesn't mean employers are going to pay for the employee's time of going shoe shopping. And people laughed at me at the time, but if we hadn't had that in there, we'd have had a problem down the road. You really have to do an assessment and, and anticipate what OSHA might do down the road and try to head those things off. Yeah, you have to visualize at the rulemaking stage. <coughs> well, that, I think, covers one of the most important issues that, uh, that's come up in the past month. I think is a, a very important case. Uh, I'm glad, Larry, thank, first of all, I'm thankful to you for joining me, and I'm glad that, to all of our members of the OSHA 3030 community for joining us. Uh, remember that the next one is scheduled in about 30 days on Wednesday, March 25th at 1 p.m. We always do this on 1 p.m. On a, on a Wednesday, and the next one is, I said March. I meant May 25th. Uh, also remember that we post this uh, web, webinar along with the slides and sound on our website at khlaw. Uh, dot com slash OSHA 3030, and we've put it out as a podcast, and you can find it on some of your favorite podcast streaming services like iTunes and Podcast Addict. Uh, as well, we post information, interesting information on our LinkedIn group, the Keller and Hackman Workplace Safety and Health Group. So uh, try and friend or like or join that group or whatever it is that people do on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you all very much. Larry Halperin, thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you in a month. Until then, stay safe.